I love a good mystery, and so does everyone else. In fact, everyone loves a good family mystery, especially one with as many twists and turns as June's Journey. I know that our listeners will absolutely love this game because you are uncovering the mystery of June's sister's murder, and you're becoming a detective. You're looking for clues, and each scene will lead you to a new thrilling storyline. This is a great way to engage your observation skills to uncover key pieces of information that lead you on to many chapters of mystery, danger, and romance. Right now, I'm in the process of interviewing family members, and this is bringing me back, just so you know, to my days in law enforcement, and I'm having such a blast with it because it is so much more lighthearted, but it also has the mystery of where will this take me? You can even chat and play with or against other players by joining a detective club. You'll even get the chance to play in a detective league to put your skills to the test. Megan, I think we should join a detective club together. We've got this. (laughs) Can you crack the case? Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. June needs your help, detective. Download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. This podcast may contain content that is graphic and disturbing in nature. Listener discretion is advised. One after another, this woman's family members would die from unknown causes. But a tip would reveal that perhaps this wasn't such a medical mystery after all. This is the Diane Stoudy story. Amy. Hello, Megan. I'm just back from, you know, doing my uh, kayaking near the Delaware River now that I am so close to it. Are you jealous? I am. I can't believe you're literally less than 10 minutes. I know. Like when I drive here and I see that gorgeous Delaware water gap and then I'm like at your house. That's my favorite part of the whole trip when you start to pass over there. I love it. Yeah. I'm very happy too, but you uh, shouldn't be too jealous because don't you live like 10 minutes from the ocean? 15. Yeah. I'm not a beach person though. I prefer... A river. Because we also have the traffic that comes with living near the beach. Oh, that's true. Okay. Mm-hmm. All right. Well, you know, you can come hang out here anytime and we don't have the traffic, you know. Bring your kayak. Maybe I'll get you one for your next birthday. All right. Welcome back to Women in Crime for all of our listeners. Today's case is one that I chose to cover because it is behavior that is very hard to comprehend and even harder to explain. But Criminologically, that's the challenge of this case. And that's what I kind of liked about this case. I came across it on like a dateline. I watched it and went, what? Are you kidding me? So again, one of those where you can't make this stuff up. Real life is stranger than Mm -hmm. fiction. Diane Stoudy was born in April 1962 in Springfield, Missouri. She met her husband, Mark, in 1984 at a music festival during college. And they married, subsequently having four children together. From oldest to youngest, they had Sean. 
Sarah, Rachel, and Brianna. They raised their children in Springfield, Missouri, where they resided in a small home with six people in it. Just 900 square feet with one bathroom and three bedrooms. Wow, that shows how spoiled I am. But I also saw your face. I was thinking, what I was thinking was this alone, that, you know, that size and and one bathroom with that many people probably is enough to create some natural tensions, you know? Yeah, I lived in 700 square feet with a husband, two kids and a dog, and it was very difficult. So that's why I said, wow, I feel pretty spoiled. Okay, but you can you can understand that a, a small space with that many people is very, you know, it's challenging. Oh, for sure. Okay. And a lot of them children. Yes, exactly. I'm, I was more thinking too, like, I'm like, one bathroom? Okay, so Diane and her daughter Rachel were very involved in their church. Diane was an organist at the Redeemer Lutheran Church, and Mark, her husband, was a singer and guitarist in a local blues band. I watched some of the videos of his performances, and he was quite talented. I mean, I thought he re- I thought he was very talented, actually. Diane was a nurse by profession and the income earner in her house, while Mark was more of the stay-at-home dad, who reportedly was not much of a housekeeper, but who was very close with his children. There was a lot of pressure seemingly on Diane financially, but also because her son had autism and required extra resources. And one of her daughters had a learning disability, according to reports. Her daughter, Rachel, was the one with whom Diane was the closest. Diane was very proud of Rachel, who was a talented artist and an academic. Sorry, did you say how old the kids were at this time? I didn't say, um, but Rachel was in her early 20s. Sarah, uh, who had just graduated from college, was also in her 20s, and I believe her brother was as well. The youngest, Brianna, was like 13. Okay, so they're all mostly grown. Or yes, grown. yes, they're they're older. Certainly, they're not you know mm-hmm. small children in the house. So thank you for putting or clarifying that. Sarah was also an accomplished student, just so you know, because, you know, Diana talked about Rachel's accomplishments. But Diane said that her children all had many talents and interests. But Rachel, as it will become very clear, was the apple of her eye. Diane's husband, Mark, was at a band rehearsal during Easter weekend 2012 when his bandmate said that he started acting oddly, like he wasn't quite, you know, with it. But they didn't think he was intoxicated or, you know, on any type of illegal substance. His friend reported that Mark's skin was yellow and he was acting very oddly the next day as well, which was Saturday. And then on Sunday, that's Easter Sunday, when Diane returned from church, she called 911 reporting that she had just found her 61-year-old husband, Mark, deceased. Now, there were no obvious signs to explain what had happened. There's no suicide indications, no drugs. Um, No alcohol seemingly involved. Of course, we won't know until we get a toxicology, but you can observe a lot from the scene. Apparently, though, as others reported, Mark had been having symptoms of illness in the week prior to his death, slurring his speech, acting disoriented. Some people said he was wobbly on his feet. And and this was also reported by his son, his friends. Uh, So there was, you know, he was seemingly affected by some unknown medical condition. Or someone slowly poisoning him. Or something, yes, something else could be happening, right, Amy? With no information, though, indicating otherwise, the medical examiner ruled it death due to natural causes. So the toxicology showed nothing. They didn't wind up doing one. 
Oh, Mark had, I believe he had diabetes or some type of other medical condition. People had reported that he was feeling sick. Diane, you know, told him that he had bad habits, that he drank a lot, that he smoked. And I think they didn't have any cause for an autopsy. Although when a 61 year old dies Mm -hmm. of, you know, not not apparently causes, I would think that Mm -hmm. they should have done that. But without one, Diane had Mark cremated. She used a small life insurance policy of $20,000 to move the family to a slightly larger home in a different neighborhood, a very nice suburb, and Diane took a new job working from home for an insurance company. The Stoudy family kept to themselves mostly, with neighbors saying they only really saw Sean Stoudy sometimes mowing the lawn, but they didn't have any real neighborly connections as others might. Actually, Amy, I thought of you, because, you know, when I'm at your house or when I was at your old house, Never was there a time where your doorbell didn't ring a minimum of two times. Yeah, we had a lot of a lot of neighbors who were close in age to my kids and yeah, very social area. Your area was. <laughs> your neighbors were always outside talking to each other yep. over at each other's houses, coming over to yours. Okay. After the family moved to this nicer home, it would seem that bad luck had followed the family again. It was about 5 months after his father died in 2012. When shockingly, 26-year-old Sean Stoudy, Diane and Mark's firstborn, was found dead by Diane after coming home from church yet again. On a Sunday? Exactly. Now, other than some dried blood around his mouth, which his father also had, and, and which can happen when people pass of natural causes, it did not seem obvious what caused Sean's death. But Diane told authorities that Sean had a long history of seizures. And had it been experiencing serious flu-like symptoms for weeks prior to his death. So again, the medical examiner attributed his death to natural causes due to previously existing medical conditions related to seizure disorder. And unbelievably, nobody questioned his death, even though Mark had just died a few months prior to this. Diane cremated Sean as well, but she didn't really memorialize Sean with a service. There was no celebration. People, you know, reportedly thought that this was very odd. There was absolutely nothing done to celebrate her son or to, you know, grieve for her son. Just when you might think that their luck would have to change. Again, less than a year later in June, Diane took 24-year-old daughter Sarah to the hospital. Sarah had multi-system organ failure and brain hemorrhaging, and it did not seem like Sarah was going to survive. She was placed on life support. The doctors were not optimistic, Amy. But this time, Diane wasn't going to be able to explain Sarah's condition with flu-like symptoms. Someone called in a tip reporting that they suspected Diane of doing something to her family members to harm them. Any idea who called this in? I sure do. It was the pastor of their church. It was just too much of a coincidence for him. Uh, especially because he's the pastor, so he's seeing the family and he knows everyone. I'm sorry, the third daughter, she didn't pass away, though. We haven't found out yet. But at this point, when the tip was called in, she was, I mean, when I say multi-system organ failure, I also watched um, something with her, her, one of her doctors said, this was hands down one of the worst cases he's ever seen of anyone who came into the hospital. Now, were the other two yellow as well in the days leading up? There were no reports that okay. described either Sean or Sarah as being yellow okay. in the days leading up Because that to was it. the husband. That was Mark, the husband right? that was reported. Okay. But, you know, it's it's a good question. But let me just say that Sarah and Sean both lived at home. I don't think Sean went out that much. I don't know if Sarah did. Mark 
was reported to be yellow by his children and by his friends because he was out. Gotcha. So it's possible that they did have some yeah. symptoms, but they just weren't seen by anyone. Well, what did, did Rachel have anything to say? Well, you're going to hear in a little bit what Rachel has to say. But after this tip was called in, doctors became suspicious that Sarah had been poisoned. And they began doing some digging and they saw some red flags, particularly as it related to that dry blood also around Mark and Sean's mouths. The staff in the hospital also thought that Diane was acting oddly. You know, we don't talk about affect, but they thought that she was acting way too happy and talking about a trip she was going to take and, you know, just casual like stuff. The doctor told Detective Neil McGamus that he thought Sarah had been poisoned. And McGamus, fearful for the rest of Diane's family, decided to bring her in for an interview. The rest of her family at this point is how many people? Yeah, she has Rachel Mm -hmm. and she has Brianna. Oh, Brianna. Okay. So Brianna's the 13-year-old and Rachel's an adult as well. Mm -hmm. Okay. And Rachel's the one I said who's seemingly the apple of her eye. The questioning, when Diane was brought in by police, the questioning began as a friendly conversation with Detective McGamus asking about Diane's family and her church and, and whatnot. He asked about Diane's husband's death, to which Diane responded that Mark was really unhealthy. She said he smoked a lot. He was diabetic. You know, it wasn't so much of a surprise. Diane described her marriage as an unhappy one, but she said that she loved her husband, even though he drank too much, smoked too much and cheated on her. I mean, you know, doesn't sound great, but she said she loved him. They asked about her son, Sean, and Diane initially said that she thought Sean had passed during one of his seizures. But the detective let her know that, you know, they were going to be looking into Sean's case. And so was the medical examiner. And this seemed to change Diane's tone when she realized that they found it suspicious. Diane then, this is how she changes what she said, okay? She then goes on to say that she's a horrible mother, not because she killed anyone or, you know, harmed anyone, but because she probably should have taken Sarah to the hospital sooner. And get this, Amy, she said that her son, Sean, was suicidal, but she did nothing to intervene because she was sick of him. And she said that Sarah also wanted to harm herself. So she's painting this picture. You know, she sticks with the fact that Mark was unhealthy and whatnot, but she's saying that her kids were depressed and suicidal and she basically didn't do anything to intervene. And that's why she's a bad mom. But shortly after that comes the bombshell admission from Diane. She Mm. tells Detective McAmis that, quote, I knew they were drinking antifreeze and I was so mad at them, I didn't want to take them in. So she's telling the detective that essentially Sean and Sarah were drinking antifreeze to try to kill themselves. What? This is her story now. That makes no sense. Well, because she knows that they're going to find... Well, she knows, but I'm saying like if anyone was going to die by suicide, I've never heard, I could be wrong, but I haven't heard of anyone... Drinking antifreeze. I am sure that there is a case that exists, but it is very, very rare. Um, We never, almost never hear about it. And if you think about it, two family members also, she's implying, were drinking antifreeze. So this was, you know, this was the moment where they're like, kind of like, gotcha, you know? Mm -hmm. And the detective handled this like a pro, Amy, because it was a shocking moment. But he pointedly told her that, hey, Diane, you know that they were drinking antifreeze because you were the one who was giving it to them. And Diane eventually admitted to it. But only after the detective gently got her there through discussing religion and by guiding her. So it was a very good interrogation. You know, I just wanted to discuss this for a second because we we often talk about coercive interrogations. But this was not coercive. It was just skillful. I watched it. There was no lying. There was no 
bullying, none of the hallmarks of improper interrogations. So I'd really like to commend the detective on this case. And I think this is like a good teaching moment about interrogation practices because, you know, you can get someone to confess the truth without having to deceive them mm-hmm. or coerce, you know, coerce them in some way. Well, I also think that detective was skilled enough to know what method would work best on her. I don't think that method would work on everyone. The method wouldn't. No, he was definitely skillful. Mm-hmm. And and certainly it wouldn't. However, I mean, this is a side note and I won't get too deep into this. I am, uh, you know, I kind of oppose the tactic of lying mm-hmm. to people because I do think it elicits yep. false confessions. Mm-hmm. So anyway, the interrogation too, Amy, was just two hours. So that's, you know, that's a pretty short amount of time. Mark wasn't brought up at this point. Well, Diane confessed to murdering her husband yeah, eventually as well. So her husband her son, Sean, and she confessed to attempting to murder her daughter, Sarah, with antifreeze by placing it in their Coca-Cola and in Mark's case, his Gatorade. So why would she do this? This is what she told the police. She said that Mark contributed nothing and was a burden. Her kids were lazy, did not contribute much either, and they were all very annoying. And in general, they were all just a nuisance to her. That was what she said. Okay. So it would seem like an open and shut case, right? All right, she's just trying to get rid of them. Well, The police arrested Diane, clearly. Mm -hmm. They've got a confession from her. Great. And they got a search warrant for her home. You know, they want to go in, obviously, and find the antifreeze and, you know, collect evidence, more evidence for her at trial. Were they able to test that Sarah did, in fact, have antifreeze in her system? She did. Okay. Yes. So they got a search warrant, but they also interviewed one of her unharmed children, and that was Rachel, to see if she knew anything about what was going on, about what her mother was doing. Like, you know, they're trying to figure out, was she in danger? Rachel said that she was shocked by what her mother did to her family. But while the police were searching their home, which was quite a mess, by the way, they found the antifreeze in the garage. Of course, it was right next to the soda, literally like the soda and the antifreeze sitting next to each other. But the more surprising discovery, because there's no surprise there, came when they went into Rachel's bedroom. They found a diary, Rachel's diary. And what it reveals was quite a shocker. You see, prior to their deaths, Rachel wrote in her journal that it was sad that her father and brother would be passing on soon. And while it would be difficult, it would all work out in the end. So she knew. Indeed, she did know. It would seem that she was in on the murders as well. And the detective interviewing her revealed what they found in her journal. Once she realized that, you know, the whole faking, I don't know what was going on, you know, that, that disappeared. She slowly admitted piece by piece to helping her mother in the planning of these murders, helping her research the various methods by which you could kill someone without raising red flags. So then Rachel, too, was arrested for the murders of her father and her brother and the attempted murder of her sister, Sarah, who was still fighting for her life in the hospital wow. and was still in the most critical condition. Were they planning on harming the youngest daughter? We'll find out. Amy, when they confiscated Rachel's purse, they found a chilling poem that she had authored. It read, Once upon a time there were six. Now there are three. Only the quiet ones will be left. My mom, my little sister, and me. Wow. That's so I re- creepy. I, I, I read that. I was like, oh my gosh. I think this note kind of revealed the true depravity yeah. of Rachel Stoudy as well. Amazingly, Sarah survived. But it was a very long road to her recovery. She had permanent issues related to her brain damage that she sustained. She had to learn how to speak all over again, how to walk 
Again, she went to live in an assisted facility center for quite some time, and eventually she was able to move out and she was able to begin working again. So I'm assuming no contact with the rest of her surviving family. Right. But it turns out, yeah, it turns out that Sarah wasn't so shocked after all about what happened to her because her mother had a journal with the deaths or discussing the deaths of Mark, Sean, but also she had Sarah's name in it and Sarah saw this. And Sarah, when she asked her mother about it, Diane dismissed it and told her not to worry about anything. How old was she at the time? She was like an adult, a young adult. Right. She was, yeah, she was in a young, she had just graduated college. I'm not sure how much Mm -hmm. earlier she had seen the, you know, the diary, but, you know. But old enough to know, you know, this isn't good. But then again, Diane's daddy was a manipulator. She could have made up something, of course, and I'm sure she did to assuage Sarah's fears. Sarah was at first vocal after she recovered about wanting to hurt her mother and sister for what they did to her. But she also said that she forgave them later on because she had to for herself. And you might ask then, Amy, why they took Sarah to the hospital. They took Sarah to the hospital while she was sick, but clearly alive. You think they had to change your heart? So that was initially like, oh, okay, maybe they felt bad or, you know, maybe they had to change your heart because they realized how much pain she was in, or maybe they just wanted to save her. Well, according to Rachel, it was because the house is disgusting after someone dies in it, and we didn't want to have to deal with that again. Wow. Yeah, this... She admitted that, or she she wrote that in her journal? Nope, she admitted that. Wow. She said that on the record. Oh, and the younger sister, 12-year-old Brianna, they were going to kill her as well, according to Rachel. But she said then there were three. Or... Mm-hmm. Okay. There were three for that time. Oh, wow. But Rachel told the police was the the ultimate plan was for it just to be Diane and Rachel living in their sort of fantasy world with only each other as best friends in it. Wow. But that dream certainly fell apart. So the 13-year-old, I'm assuming she went into state custody or was adopted by a family member. I'm not sure who wound up Mm -hmm. with Brianna, to be honest. I I don't recall, but she was safe. She was never harmed in any way. I mean, she was harmed, but not physically. Uh But now that they were caught, what would the mother and daughter do? You Turn know? on each other. That's going to ask. I've what, seen this play out before. Ah, this isn't my first time at this rodeo. Mm. Would the pair remain a united team? No. Mm, okay. So would they both turn on each other? Would one turn on the other? Who do you, who do you think? What are your predictions? Let's see if Amy's well, my, right. My predictions are that the daughter's quicker to turn on the mom. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Rachel right. turned on her mother right away. Okay agreeing to testify against her in exchange for a plea agreement to second-degree murder with a sentence still of life, but the chance of parole after 42 and a half years. And she was in her 20s at the time? Early 20s. Okay. So So 60s. Wow, okay. Yeah, but it was just the possibility of Mm -hmm. getting out. Yeah. During her sentencing, and already, Rachel was very tiny, but she appeared emaciated. Um, She was crying and apologizing to her sister. Diane Stoudy faced the death penalty, so she took a plea also to save her life. She took an Alfred plea, though. Amy, the Alfred plea is one in which... In which an individual pleads guilty, but they maintain innocence. Right. So they're just acknowledging, yes, the state has enough against me, but I'm not going to say I did it. I'm not going to say I did it, but at the same time, I'm not going to trial and we're going to strike a deal. Yep. So Diane did this, opting for a sentence of life without the possibility of parole. Okay. During her sentencing, Diane's sentencing, while Sarah read her victim impact statement, Diane wouldn't even look at her daughter. The reason I actually came across this case, I think I said I I was watching something. She was recently interviewed. uh, And I said Dateline, but I stand corrected. Sorry. It was actually 2020. Okay. And I should have known better. (laughs) But she was 
in an updated version. And she said that her children were a joy. All She called them little professors, all little professors in their own way with interest in computers, music, and learning about other cultures. She also said that we don't know the whole story and that she is sorry for what her family went through, but she went through something too. While she had admitted to killing her family members, since then, she has spoken out saying that she did not do it. So in this interview, she claimed that Mark had been hanging around some very dangerous people and that she heard he had been, quote, greenlighted. What, what does that mean? He's been greenlighted. Like a green light means for a hit. Like someone yeah. gave the green light to put yeah. a hit out on him. So she was saying that he was a target. But okay. that his family was probably also. So she claimed that these dangerous people may have also poisoned him. And she believes they were poisoning the family and that she was poisoned as well. How would they have had access to her family? They didn't leave the house. I don't know. Honestly, it, sense. it, it yeah. does not make sense. But she was, you know, holding steadfast to that. When she said she went through something, too, she wasn't just talking about the deaths of her family members. She was talking about the fact that she was also poisoned. And Rachel's never said anything of the sort. No, never. She also said, Diane also said that Sean took his own life and that she's sorry for what Sarah went through, but she did not provide an explanation for how and why Sarah was poisoned. So she's saying that Mark was poisoned, she was poisoned, and I guess it's possible that Sarah was as well, but not Sean. I mean, what's the, what's yeah, the point? I don't know. And even though she spoke to 2020 Amy, she didn't say much at all. I didn't understand the point of even doing the interview. There was a lot to take away without her own words, though. You know, you could speak to the behavior of her. When I say there's a lot to take away, you could speak to her behavior criminologically. I was waiting to see if she would say anything, you know, at Mm -hmm. all. Like, what would she say? Was she just going to say sorry? Was, you know, what was the new information here? And apparently what's new is that she denies any involvement in the crime. And where's Rachel? Rachel's incarcerated as well. And I mean, has she spoken publicly? Not that I know of. Okay. I haven't seen any interviews okay. or press done with her, although it's certainly possible. But in my research, I didn't find any okay. on this. She never has disputed the fact that she and her mother poisoned them. They planned to. There was antifreeze. Let's just let's just say, okay, you know, someone's after Mark. He was hanging out with dangerous mm-hmm. people. Someone who greenlights another person doesn't poison them and feed them antifreeze over an extended period of time (laughs) to kill them. That's not how it works. So, you know, the method in which he was killed would indicate absolutely someone, you know, closer to home. And, you know, I cover this sometimes in my women in crime class because women, you know, tend to use different methods Mm -hmm. to kill than men. And one of the primary methods women use is poison. Yeah. And that's because it's it's easier for women to use poison than to try to get into a physical altercation. Yeah, it's more of a hands-off approach. Right. All right. So that story was a bizarre one. Um, that's where we stand today. Wow. Diane Stoudy will not get out of prison, and Rachel will be in prison at least until her 60s. So let's talk about some of the explanations. See, this is where it gets really interesting for me. Amy, do you have any thoughts about criminological behavior of either Rachel or Diane or both before I discuss? I mean, I don't know anything about Diane's upbringing, her mental health. By all measures, it was pretty average and normal. I don't like to use the word normal. No, she didn't have any. As far as you know, she didn't have any history. As far as I know, she did not. I don't know. It just seems so irrational that it's hard to even make sense of it yet we use rational choice you're using because rational as choice i tell my as, as i tell my students though like rationality is in the eye of the beholder it's bounded bounded yeah. rationality yeah it doesn't mean that i think what she did was rational it means to her she made a choice 
she saw an issue. She saw a, a way to fix that issue. Mm-hmm. And so she weighed the costs and the benefits and she did what she did. Okay, I don't know. So this is utilitarian. Maybe, but I still, I, I need to know, there's got to be something in her background. This just seems too outrageous. Right. But to the point of being utilitarian, she saw her family members as being also a financial burden. Yep. She was the one who worked. Mm-hmm. Sarah, I don't know if I mentioned, Sarah did graduate college, but she had moved home and she didn't have a job and she wasn't financially contributing at the time. Mm-hmm. And I think that Diane became resentful of that part. And Diane also had to care for Sean. And as I said, Mark, you know, would work part-time and freelance and was in a band, but Diane was the breadwinner. Rachel worked as well. I'm just, I don't remember what she did. Is that why Rachel was saved? Or I know you said she was always kind of the golden child, but... She was always, they got along better than anyone else. I think she saw, yeah, Rachel had utility. Rachel was helpful. Rachel was just her best friend. And, you know, they saw a world in which the two of them just existed. So does that make you... Yes, light bulb. Remember okay. um, Julie, oh God, why can't I remember? It's one of our first Julia episodes. Julia Hume, was it Hume? Hume yeah. and Parker. Yes. Right? And they had murdered one of the girl's mothers. I think it was like episode three. It was really early on, but they had shared psychosis. Okay. So are you suggesting that's what might be happening? I am suggesting that a little bit. Interesting. Um, I am. I wrote that down in my notes. You you got it before What's I the, did. How do you pronounce it again? You know I can't. Folia do. All right. Yes. And the reason I suggest this, it's not full on. I, those girls that we had covered, I think, had yes. more of an unrealistic world. But I did think of that, and they seemed they were very codependent. And while somewhat grounded in reality, they also had like a shared delusion. They kept talking about kind of like, like this utopia that they would be experiencing or living in once the others were gone. So I do think that they had fully ado in some way grounded in more reality. Yeah. I'd also like to talk about the fact that this is unique in that these are mother-daughter serial killers. I mean, serial killers as females are unique, just so you know. About 17% of serial killers are females. Would they be considered family annihilators or that's only if everyone is? So this is about as rare as it gets. You've got females, there's serial killers who are also family annihilators. This is literally the rarest that you can- Do you know of any other case that fits that description? Um, I'm going to tell you about a couple of cases that are female paired serial killers Mm -hmm. and one or two maybe fit. So I'm just going to tell you a few more. But before I do get to that, they're team serial killers too. And I want to just say that team serial killers account for about 15 to 20% of all serial killers. But they're not, as you pointed out, often female team killers. And related. And related. Yes, exactly. So when they are team killers, usually there's a leader. And this is clearly Diane is mm-hmm. the leader here, okay? Diane brought Rachel in, her favorite daughter, the one who Diane wanted to be with. And for Rachel, this served as the best reinforcement of her mother's love. And she wanted to please her mother. I do think, like, you know, I saw depravity from Rachel, but I don't know that that depravity wasn't created mm-hmm. by her mother and, and then, you know, enforced again. And, you know, so I just wanted to point that out quickly to keep that in mind when we talk about theory for Rachel as well. So I know of just a few cases with female paired serial killers. Have you ever heard of Gwendolyn Graham and Kathy Wood? Nope. Right, because you don't teach serial killers. I and- do not. Or women in crime. Yes, but maybe women in crime, you'd be interested now in <laughs> teaching that. I know you won't be interested in teaching serial killers. Nope. Well, the two of them, that pair killed as part of a relationship. To demonstrate their love for one another, they would kill elderly patients in the nursing home where they worked and have, you know, sexual rendezvous afterwards. 
So it was like those thrill, yes, yes. sadists, the whole. They were thrill killers. Um, and they did it as part of their, you know, love for was each other. Was it also like mercy killing a little? Because they, they, they were chose... mercy killing. No. Yeah. You could, we often do look yeah. at, it's a good call, mercy killings in nursing homes, but they were not mercy killers. No. Um, the Gonzalez sisters who ran a brothel in early days in Mexico, and they would recruit sex workers by placing wanted ads for housemates as a lure. The women were then beaten, heavily drugged to gain compliance and forced into sex work when they thought they were there applying for, you know, a maid position or something else. When they became too ill, injured or old, the four sisters would kill them off. The sisters also poisoned customers who carried large sums of money. When they were eventually caught, the police found 91 bodies on their property, including, yes, 80 women, 11 men and several fetuses. How did I never hear? Have you heard of this case before? You know what? I've only heard of it through our work on another podcast, um, one that we're working on about serial offending. And so... That's how I came across that one. And I'm not sure if it was me or James who actually came across that information, but I just remembered it in terms of family killers, females. So it was one that I wanted to point out. But the one that was um, most similar to this one, I would say, um, and that happened a few years ago, um, was the case of Shayna Decree and her daughter, Dominic Decree. No, Mm -mm. I hadn't heard of them either, but I was so so, interested because they're so rare. I was like... Mm -hmm. I have to figure this out. They were found guilty but mentally ill in the murders of five of their family members. Four were children. The pair received several life sentences because, as people may or may not know, Amy, guilty but mentally ill does not change the outcome. Mm -hmm. So guilty but mentally ill means you still go to prison. You may receive different services. Mm -hmm. However, this is not the same as, you know, being found not guilty by reason of insanity. Because if you're found not guilty of reason of insanity, you go to a forensic hospital, not a prison. Correct. I've taught like, you know, classes on guilty but mentally ill. And my students always ask me, what was the, what's the point? Yeah. And I think the point was People wanted to move away from seeming lenient mm-hmm. on the insanity plea while still allowing for mental illness. But because it doesn't change the outcome, I don't see the utility in it at all. And when somebody is found not guilty by reason of insanity, mm-hmm. they can be released. Oftentimes, their their time committed is actually longer than it would have been if they went to prison. Mm-hmm. But they could be released once they're restored to sanity. That's correct. And people are released. Mm-hmm. That that happens. And certainly it's a possibility. So that's very, very different. Just wanted to give you some examples there. And like I said, that was just the closest one that I could find to this case. Again, showing you just how completely rare this is. But back to Diane. I think that Diane was absolutely honest. I don't think she liked her husband or her mm-hmm. kids. I think she saw them as obstacles to her happiness. And I think it was, you know, rational choice, utilitarian. Here's how I make myself happy. I remove what's making me unhappy. Diane Stoudy has zero remorse for what she did. She absolutely did not love her family members. She did not want them around. They were draining her financially and emotionally. But Rachel was trying to gain her mother's absolute adoration. So I think her motives are different. If Rachel hadn't ever, if it wasn't for her mother, her her mother's influence, I don't know that Rachel ever would have committed a crime. Mm -hmm. Is there a theory before I move on to talk about the criminal justice system? Is there a theory that comes to mind for Rachel? I mean, it could be social learning theory, but I could see differential reinforcement in the fact that they got away with Mark's murder and then they got away with Sean's murder, which is why they continued doing it. I was thinking Rachel's continued involvement because she was reinforced by her mother every time. 
We but, did the right thing. Like I think her mom brought her in and then would reinforce the behavior once they did I it. I see what you're life saying. Is, okay. So without this person, life is going to be better. And then, oh, you helped me. Oh, you know, she got the adoration. She got the attention. Yeah, I there think, was no punishment. There was positive I think she was reinforcement. Rewar- yeah, I think she was positively rewarded by her mother mm-hmm. who knew exactly that that's what Rachel was seeking. I didn't think of it that way, but it makes sense once you explained it. Oh, okay, great. I'm glad. So- in the end, we have two serial killers who unfortunately did irrevocable harm to their family members, the ones who died and, and the, one who, the ones who survived as well. Did the criminal justice system get it right then? It's, yep, it seems like they did. I agree, but I'm going to just say one caveat here. I agree that they, the punishments are totally appropriate, but this came too late. Oh, yes. Mm-hmm. I mean, while antifreeze is difficult to detect, yeah. Mark's death was unexplained. And after her son died... How much time elapsed between each of this the deaths? This all happened within a year. So it was a couple, yeah. but a couple months apart. Yeah, th- I think they could have. The system got it right eventually, but yes, yes it was a little late. They could have maybe prevented at least Sarah's. They harm. certainly could have prevented Sarah's and even possibly Sean's. But, mm-hmm. you know, so I'm saying, yeah, yeah they got it right. And, you know, the, the mm-hmm. end and the punishment. But, you know, it, uh, that's always what we look at at the end. Right. When it could have, you know, could have stopped earlier on. Well, I'm glad that the youngest daughter was spared. I'm glad too. And I'm glad that Sarah went on to recover and she was able to, you know, forgive them and move on with her life. Mm -hmm. And I hope that both Sarah and Brianna have gone on to have, you know, healthy, productive, happy lives because that's what they deserve. Thank you for bringing this case to my attention. I'd never heard of it. You know, before this, I hadn't either. So I would be curious to see um, if Diane Stoudy or if Rachel Stoudy does any interviews in the future. Okay. Thank you so much, Amy. Thank you everyone for listening. And we'll see you next time on Women and Crime. Women in Crime is written and hosted by Megan Sachs and Amy Schlossberg. Our producer is James Varga, edited by Jose Alfonso. Music composition is by Dessert Media. If you enjoy the show, please remember to subscribe and leave a review. You can also support the show through Patreon, where you can get access to additional ad-free content such as virtual happy hours and an extra full-length episode each month. For more information, visit patreon.com slash womenincrime. Sources for today's episode include articles from ABC News, an episode of 2020, and People.com. Seeking the truth never gets old. Introducing June's Journey, the free-to-play mobile game that will immerse you in a thrilling murder mystery. Join June Parker as she uncovers hidden objects and clues to solve her sister's death in a beautifully illustrated world set in the roaring 20s. With new chapters added every week, the excitement never ends. Download June's Journey now on your Android or iOS device or play on PC through Facebook games.